Good afternoon and welcome to the City View podcast with me, Andy Sylvester. In a minute, we'll have a quick look at the implications of potential war in Ukraine with our NG reporter, Nicholas Earl. But for now, the headlines in the Square Mile this afternoon. And we can add Kit Kats and Durex to the list of goods going up in price at a rate of knots. This morning, the confectioner Nestle and consumer goods and pharma firm Ricket both confirmed that costs are continuing to increase and they'll be forced to pass on the consequences to customers. It's another pressure on inflation. Nonetheless, good news from both, really. Reckitt revenues across the group up 3.5% to $13.2 billion, pushed up by higher prices across the group and a strong growth in the firm's hygiene division. As it said, it was starting to leave COVID-19 swings behind it. Sales of coffee products, too, have driven Nestle's organic growth, while Total reported sales hitting a sum worth just shy of $70 billion pounds in full year results for 2021 world's largest food and beverage company said total reported sales increased 3.3 percent organic growth stood at seven and a half percent driven by strong momentum for its two main coffee brands nescafe and nespresso and the West End will have fully recovered in just two years, according to a new report after COVID-19 restrictions decimated London's entertainment and hospitality industries. Some $8.6 billion is expected to be pumped into the retail and theatre district, nearly double the $4.6 billion it pulled in in 2021. It signals the West End is climbing closer to a full recovery, with Colliers, the real estate experts, forecasting that spending in the district will match pre-pandemic levels of $10 billion by 2024, after the recovery is turbocharged by the unveiling of the new Elizabeth Line, otherwise known as Crossrail. International banking group Standard Chartered reported a rebound in profits to 3.9 billion US today and announced a $750 million share buyback as it begins to recover from a pandemic slump. Bosses said profits had grown 61% on 2020 levels, but warned that the pandemic's, quote, considerable challenges were dragging on performance and making the turnaround at Standard longer than expected. And Westfield have agreed a three-year extension to its long-term collaboration with Disney UK, tying the media company into Westfield London and Westfield Stratford City until December 2024. The new agreement will see what they call 360-degree integration between Disney and Westfield on everything from event sponsorship through branded experience and co-branded digital and static media. Um, The high street may be in trouble, but it looks like Mickey Mouse may be bailing out retailers. Um, Nick Earl joins us now. He's our energy reporter here at City AM. And following machinations uh, on the Ukraine-Russian border for some time, it now appears as if we're in a bit of an information uh, black hole, really, with uh, claim and counterclaim from Russia, US, UK, and Ukrainian forces at the minute, all saying whether war is is seemingly imminent or possibly not going to happen at all. Um, but what it means probably for the global economy is most clear around gas implications and nick you've been digging into how ready essentially the rest of europe is for any kind of severe disruption on on liquid natural gas why don't we just start by explaining why russia and ukraine's row um or i say russia and ukraine's row there is no row from ukraine this is just russian aggression why why will it affect gas supplies well if there is any sanctions from europe in response to um instigations of conflict in ukraine um the reality is russia would be likely to divert flows away from the continent to the best of its ability well disruption itself could emerge from conflicts in the region. Um, This means, of course, that Europe, which is already suffering from shortening natural gas supplies due to cut export growth from Gazprom, which has been playing games over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline over the past few months, um, 
there's a situation now where Europe is desperately trying to ramp up its liquefied natural gas supplies. And it has been pretty successful with the help of the White House, help of US tankers who bailed out, bailed out the continent over Christmas mm. and have come to its rescue again, also with the help of Qatar and Japan. Right. The problem is that now it's at full capacity or near full capacity of its liquefied natural gas is that there's not much capacity to bring more exports into the mm. continent. And this means that there's a problem because gasification, turning liquefied natural gas into usable gas for your homes, is quite a lengthy, quite extensive process. Mm -hmm. And much of which actually happens in Southern Europe over, over creaking pipelines and over more tired infrastructure. Okay. And this of course means that while Europe is in a situation where we have quite a lot of liquefied natural gas now, so we actually, to the point that Ursula von der Leyen recently said that they could deal with short-term disruption to supply some Russia. We actually aren't very flexible about bringing more stuff in. Right. So essentially we're full. Um, yes. Which means obviously any kind of stop um, of, of, you know, any kind of supply. There, there is basically very little that Europe can do now other than hope that those imports keep coming in. Is that basically the premise? That's essentially it, unless there is some sort of miraculous change in Gazprom's business policy. Which seems somewhat unlikely. Um, who's in a good place? Who's in a bad place? So obviously, there's been some criticism of the UK in recent years for, for getting rid of its, its deep gas storage capacity. The rest of Europe a little more equipped to, to get themselves through this long winter, potentially very long winter. <laughs> well, in terms of uh, natural gas supplies, they're, um, they're also in a pretty perilous position. They have 34% of their current full capacity. Mm. So there isn't really much of a difference between whether Europe's natural gas supplies and the UK's natural gas supplies. It's also worth remembering, of course, that while the UK only imports 5% of its natural gas directly from Russia, it still buys from the European market, which is around 40% of Russia's gas. So yeah. despite Brexit, this actually is a, co a continent-wide issue. Yeah, no, that makes makes perfect sense. And I guess the, the upshot of that will be it's unlikely that demand is going to tail off significantly for gas. People are still going to want to use their hobs. Um, very nice chilli that I'm going to be heating up this evening that I made this morning before coming into the office, the glamorous life of a journalist. Um, so if demand for gas stays broadly where it might be, the only way you're going to bring that demand down is by the price going up. Yeah. <laughs> which is another pressure um, on inflation, which we've obviously spoken a lot about on the podcast already this week with the UK, well, the Bank of England, um, putting inflation at, well, the, if, inflation is something we talked a lot about already on the podcast this week. Uh, the Office of National Statistics reporting it's 5.5% in the UK currently year on year. That uh, expected to rise anywhere between 7 and, uh, and 8% uh, by April where what is there a lesson for for future energy mix policy because we hear a lot about energy dependence uh, in the UK particularly in British politics we, we hear a lot about the need to to create more energy at home um if we're going to do that we're going to have to do a certain deal with with other devils i guess and we saw this week issues around the UK's relationship with Chinese nuclear companies <laughs> Inexplicable. A regulator here basically giving the seal of approval to a Chinese nuclear reactor, which is almost certain never to be used in a new Essex nuclear power plant. We are faced with a wider conundrum here, aren't we, Nick? Which is we do want to shift to net zero by 2050. That involves changing the energy mix towards a greener, more sustainable um, mix. 
But to get there, you need these bridging fuels, bridging technologies, um, because as much as politicians want net zero by 2050, they also want the lights to stay on. It's a situation where the focus has to be on security of supply and about the resilience of your energy sector. The ability to withstand shocks and volatility is increasingly important as you transition to a supposedly green utopia that could be on our way. Mm. And one thing that that means, and it's an unpopular point to make, but it's an important one, is you can't realistically have a sustainable shift towards renewable sources without actually having a consistent supply of a bridging energy source, Mm. such as natural gas and North Sea oil. And um, despite the clamour for windfall taxes and to close down uh, fracking and Mm. other environmentally dubious sources of energy, the reality Mm. remains that if the market crashed, we'd probably be both A, reliant on coal-powered generators, and secondly, that there would be huge disruption, which would not just be incredibly expensive for consumers, but would actually essentially completely derail any kind of transition towards mm. wind power, which incidentally underperformed spectacularly over the winter and the autumn. <laughs> well, with the with Storm Eunice coming this weekend, um, you would hope at least this weekend of, of all, we can get a decent amount of power from, um, from wind. Nick, uh, that's fascinating. Thanks for joining us. And that's all from me on the CityView podcast this week as ever on Friday we will have Nassan De Silva and our various tech and crypto reporters discussing uh, moves in that particular market I'll be done for the week and I'll see you again on Monday